Man, good morning, family. Well, here we are. It's summer. Ephesians is over. And everyone, including myself, would love to know where we're going next. Uh, <clears throat> and I don't know. Uh, but we're going to go somewhere. Uh, but today we're going to do just a standalone sermon, probably today and next week, and uh, probably begin a new series uh, the following week after that. Um, I just want to give you a quick update uh, for myself um, and my family just because uh, the coming weeks are going to be different for us. Um, here uh, in the next few weeks, my wife's uh, mother and stepfather and teenage brother and sister are going to be immigrating from Zimbabwe, Africa to San Antonio um, and will be uh, for the near to foreseeable future living with us. And so um, over the next several weeks during the course of this summer, um, I am taking steps and working diligently right now to um, step back from ongoing upfront sort of active uh, roles. And so for the next several weeks, I probably will not be preaching as much unless it is absolutely necessary, as well as stepping back in leading worship as well. Uh, just two areas that I can step back for a bit and focus on uh, my family and my wife and her family and um, seek to really serve them well during this time and make sure that they have the best parts of me um, for the next several weeks. And so I would just really appreciate your prayers for us in all of that, as well as many who are stepping up to make that a possibility. just want to let you know how thankful I am and how appreciative I am of that. And um, uh, ask that you would pray for my wife's family, too. Um, it's going to be a big, a big transition and change for them, uh, something that uh, they are excited about, uh, but also carries with it a great deal of unknown, and with that unknown just comes a lot of trepidation. And so uh, please keep them in prayer and us in prayer as well, and uh, we can't wait to introduce you to them and, and hope that uh, they might become a part of this family as much as uh, they're part of our family already. So appreciate that from you and ask that of you. And today, uh, we are going to go to Hebrews chapter 3. So if you open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3. We're going to be in Hebrews 3 and 4 quite a bit this morning. And then we're going to visit a few other places as well. If you're familiar with the structure of Hebrews, you know that we're, we're jumping in here uh, on this uh, portion of Scripture here in the middle of chapter 3 that really has to do with a rest that the preacher describes to his audience in this book of Hebrews, a rest that comes from God, a rest with God, and a rest that is ultimately in God. And so we're going to read uh, from verse 7. And we're going to uh, 
read this citation of Psalm 95, which was our call to worship this morning, in verse, verses 7 through 11. And we'll read some more than that, but let's use that as our text this morning. It says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Here we see this citation from Psalm 95, and it was the part of that psalm that really was almost difficult to deal with at the beginning of worship. I don't know if any of you felt that the way that I felt that, because the psalm opens up in Psalm 95, and it opens with this joyful exuberance uh, where the psalmist says, Come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to Him with songs of praise. There's exuberance here. There's joy here. There's rejoicing. And then we get to the end of the psalm, and you almost want to say, well, gee, I wonder if when they put the numbers in the psalms and kind of made the chapters, if they kind of messed up a little bit and should have backed up and maybe started, uh, you know, Psalm 96 or added a psalm because 96 starts real joyfully as well. Maybe they should have jumped up and made a new psalm uh, beginning in, you know, end of verse 7. Because we read it and there's this joyful exuberance and then we get to verse 7 and we have this part that's cited here in Hebrews chapter 3 and it's really kind of a downer. Am I the only one that caught that this morning? Come let us sing, worship, yeah, praise God, oh wonderful. Oh... As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Great, guys. Come, thou fount of every blessing. Was I the only one that caught that this morning? There was this tension there, wasn't there? This tension as we, we hear this judgment given to this generation whose hearts stray. And what did we sing? Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And this judgment that God utters over this generation, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. It's interesting as you read through Scripture that this theme of rest is reoccurring. And rest is not a given. It's not a given that someone will lie down at night and close their eyes and sleep and have the kind of rest that restores the soul that we so need. Why? 
because of the curse that says, in our work, which was from the beginning and is a blessing from God, there will be the curse of toil. Probably another way of describing that toil is vanity. That's how the preacher in Ecclesiastes describes it. Vanity of vanities. Chasing the wind. We know that this is true because we have all experienced that place where we actually exude great energy in workful effort in things that don't actually deplete our soul. I don't know if there is anything that I have found much more toiling than fishing. (laughs) But there are some who probably expend more effort and energy in this fishing than they do in the rest of all of their gainful employment and yet come away from it totally refreshed and restored. Rested, though working. That's just a taste, just a glimmer as through a glass darkly of the kind of rest that God has invited us into. It's not a ceasing from work and effort, but it is an entering into the joy of the Lord, which is our strength. And though effort is expended, He is refueling and restoring us along the way. when we have those things that we do now where we expend great effort and yet we are not drained, we we are receiving just a, a foretaste of that thing. And those things should cause us to yearn for, hunger for, and thirst for the real thing. My point today is not that fishing restores the soul. It can be good for you. But truly, it is our triune God who from the Father, in the Son, and by the Spirit is the one who truly can give rest to the weary soul. I don't often um, title my sermons, um, especially since predominantly we go through books of the Bible. So most of our sermons are like Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, right? Pretty easy. That's, that's I don't, I think it works. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to mess with that. But even as, as I began this uh, sermon, I, I, I started wrestling with, well, what, what, what exactly is the thing that, that, I'm trying to describe here. And so I have a very puritanical uh, title to my sermon this morning. Um, And I really gave it two. So I'll give you the puritanical version and then like the modern day version, okay? 
So the Puritanical version is sermon on entering the rest of God by believing and trusting in his sovereign goodness, care, and love as our loving and faithful shepherd, vine dresser, and father. All right? I'll read that one more time so you, so you can catch that. Sermon on entering the rest of God by tr- believing and trusting in his sovereign goodness, care, and love as our loving and faithful shepherd, vine dresser, and father. Or rest for the weary soul. All right? So take, take your pick. All right? And I, I wrestled with this because... I came to a text like Psalm 95 and the citation here in Hebrews 3 and God declaring like this judgment saying, they, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And it created tension in me because one of the things, one of the verses that I learned from a very early age comes from Psalm 127 that says that the Lord gives rest to those that he loves, that he gives sleep restorative sleep to those that he loves. As I wrestled with this, I began to think of the opening paragraph of St. Augustine's Confessions when he makes this statement, O Lord, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. created this tension because on one hand, God is declaring rest for those that he loves. And on the other hand, he's swearing in his wrath that these particular people will not enter his rest. And so let's read and see what the preacher here in Hebrews says about this oath that God makes. In verse 12 of chapter 3, he says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Here, the preacher gives the why to the oath that God swears in his wrath, and he says that it has to do with an evil and unbelieving heart. Or you could say an unbelieving heart, which is called evil. There's some work that we need to do with this because often in our age, we, we do not call unbelievers evil. We simply say they're unbelievers and there are other evils and perils in the world. And yet here, inspired by the Holy Spirit, the preacher in Hebrews is saying that what is truly evil in this world is a heart that is unbelieving towards God. He says, leading you to fall away from the living God. What we have to remember here is that the root of every sin is the sin of unbelief. Before we, before we enter into a place of committing a particular 
actionable sin. The thing that we would think about when we think about what sins have I committed this week. If I had to write a list and begin to write things down, I I would think about things that I had done, things that I had said, attitudes that I had harbored in my heart towards my brothers and sisters or or towards uh, my family or my co-workers or friends or neighbors. And, And I would think about those things. And if I began to write them down, I would list out all of these manifestations of sin that have come in my life. But if I had to take all of them, I could circle all of them and draw a line and simply write and underline in capital letters the sin of unbelief. Because ultimately at the root of all of those sins, there was something inside of me manifesting itself probably in three particular areas of my life called the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. But even those three things in me are rooted in this bulbous root at the bottom called unbelief. Because what's happening in the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life? In the lust of the eyes, I'm seeing something that I do not have, and I am saying, I want that. It's covetousness. I I want that. I don't have it. I see it, and I want it. I desire it. I lusteth after this thing. That's the lust of the eyes. I see it, and I want it. The lust of the flesh, or sorry, the, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, back up, the lust of the eyes as I see it, the lust of the flesh says, I want it, I desire it. I covet it with my eyes, I desire it with my flesh. Okay, I'm, I, I missed that, if you didn't catch that, I'm correcting myself. Lust of the eyes is seeing it and coveting it in your heart, okay? The lust of the flesh is desiring it. I see that, I don't have it, I want it, I desire it. That's the lust of the flesh. And the pride of life comes in, and what does the pride of life say? The pride of life says, I deserve it. I deserve it. But what do we have to recognize in this moment? We have to recognize what James says in his letter to the church, that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father above. Which means that if the Father has not seen fit yet to give this thing to me that I think that I want and need, right? That's maybe kind of the... the, the, the distinction as well between lust of the eyes and lust of the flesh. I, I want it, lust of the flesh, I need it. Pride of life, I deserve it. What are we saying? We're saying this thing that God has not given me, I'm going to take for myself. Does that sound familiar? Is it truly as simple as all that? Yes, it truly is. For in the very beginning, man was not satisfied 
with what God had provided. And rather than resting in His sovereign care, in unbelief, Eve saw the fruit and that it was good for eating. She saw it. She wanted it. She said, I deserve it. And she took and she ate the forbidden fruit. And every single one of our actionable sins really can be traced back to that same root sin of unbelief. This is why we can say in the Ten Commandments that truly it is in keeping the first commandment that all the rest of the commandments are kept. What is the first commandment? Anybody? Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's in believing in Him and trusting in Him and honoring Him that the rest of the commandments are kept. So why is it so hard? Because of this root of unbelief in our hearts. And if we were left there, we would be without hope. Well, what can I do then? If this root of unbelief is there, and I have no power to uproot it myself, and if I am prone to wander and prone to leave the God I love, then I'm in the same place as this generation that are always going astray in their own heart. What is to keep God from swearing an oath over me that I shall not enter into his rest. The preacher gives an answer in verse 13. He says, But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. What does it say next? For we have come to share in Christ. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. What is to keep God from swearing in His wrath, making an oath in His wrath that I shall not enter His rest, though I too am prone to wander as that generation of the children of Israel? It is the propitiation of Christ Himself for me, the thing that protects me from the wrath of God is Christ Himself. I have come to share in Christ. And His banner over me is love. I belong to my beloved and He belongs to me. And His banner over me is love. And what does that mean? It means that I have been placed into the cleft of the rock of ages. And there I find my rest. It's in Him. Suddenly this takes a different turn. You mean it's not up to me 
to somehow do what I can't do. But truly what I am invited into is surrender. I'm invited back to that place in front of that tree And I'm invited again to rest in the sovereign care and provision of God. And has He provided? He has provided richly through His Son, Jesus. As it is said, He continues today, If you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those, uh, was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. There is a root of unbelief in all of us, but the only one who can uproot it is God Himself. And this is what we find as we enter chapter 4. He says, Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands, that the rest that was offered at the beginning was not lost forever, but an invitation remains open an invitation to you and to me this morning to enter into the rest of our God. He says, Let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Seem to have failed to reach it. I wonder how how many... How many Christians truly believing in Christ as a gift of God's grace, appropriated by faith, and yet because of ignorance, a lack of teaching, false teaching, will go through their entire lives completely and totally covered by the blood of Jesus and yet working their fingers down to the bone in toil, trying to earn what has already been bestowed upon them. I wonder how many of us still today are trying to earn what God has already graciously bestowed. And yet, there is here an invitation to rest.
Hey, how's it going? Oh, yeah, good, good, you know. Busy. Oh, yeah, busy? Yeah, busy. Work's busy, family, oh, yeah, all busy. Tired. Tired. <laughs> When's the last time you asked somebody how they're doing? You're like, I'm so rested. I'm just like, I feel like a million bucks right now. Just like, I'm ready to take on the world. I, I'm, I'm, my, my soul is rejoicing in the Lord. I'm, I'm rested and, I, and I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm ready. <laughs> Never. <laughs> and yet, we have an invitation to rest. And not even a temporary one. I need rest so bad that I'm prone to see vacation as an idol. Thinking that what I really need to save me is time off. Anybody else? How sad, how sad is that day, the last day of vacation, where yet again my idol has failed me. Just got to make it to my day off this week. If I can just make it to the weekend, then I'll be okay. And then the weekend comes and the weekend goes. And the rhythm of work and toil starts again. And again, our idol has failed us. For good news, verse 2, came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. They were not united by faith. So we see that the judgment on this generation to not enter into the rest of God was because of the sin of unbelief. And in that unbelief, they were not united by faith. But that's not our story. So what's our excuse? I think most of us who are here today, taking a cursory view of the room, most of us here today would claim that we have been united by faith. That's like why we're here and not sleeping, because we really need rest. And yet, we still need rest, real rest for our weary souls. Why? Could it be that we've forgotten 
that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Not just once upon a time when we believed, but for me today. Though I have already believed, though I have already been united to God by faith in Christ, could it be that in this moment right now, here today, though covered by the blood of Jesus, I am failing to remember that what Christ did for me on the cross was not just for me then, it's for me now. That what I need today is the power of the gospel unto salvation because there is still a root of unbelief that is deceitful and is trying to call me away into less wild lovers and things by the lust of my eyes, the lust of my flesh, and the pride of my life. Seeing things and coveting them and believing that I need them and worse off that I deserve them, and therefore I take them and break the law of my God. Is it possible, like the dwarves in the last battle, of C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia to be drawn into the place of the rest of the king, richly provided for with every kind of food and delicacy, and have our hearts and minds so blinded to still believe that we are in a stable eating straw and dung. Because verse 3 says, For we who have believed enter that rest. It's an interesting turn of phrase. We who have believed, past tense, enter that rest presently, actively. That we are subsisting and persisting in this rest. That it's ours. That it belongs to us. By virtue of our unity with Christ by faith. It belongs to us. It's ours. It's our birthright. And yet, still I'm exhausted. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience... You could say also unbelief. Again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua 
had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. What does this mean? It means that though the children of Israel thought that the promised land was the promised rest, the promised Sabbath rest of their God and Creator, Canaan was not the fulfillment of that rest. That's why David, many years and generations after the children of Israel had already entered the promised land, he again says regarding this generation that they shall not enter my rest. Verse 9, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Now this is interesting. We know that on the seventh day of creation that God rested from the work that he had done. But shall we say that God has ceased to work? Did he just roll everything up and tie a bow on it on the seventh day and head to the cooler never to return? No. His work changed. Where God's active work of creation ceased, His passive work of providence began. His active work of speaking those things that were not as though they were and they became moved into the realm of cultivation and care and tending. Is it so ironic then that after the resurrection Jesus is mistaken for a gardener? We've been invited into an eternal Sabbath rest. Canaan was not the fulfillment of this. And we, we, we know this. We can't hardly get through a day without a news line or headline that says, Unrest in the Middle East. It was not the fulfillment. And we get to verse 11, and, and, and this is where... There's tension again. Because what does it say? Let us strive to enter that rest. This reminds me of Ephesians 2 through 4. The unity that has been proclaimed over us as the body of Christ. And then we get to chapter 4. And Paul tells us, contend for unity in the bond of peace. Wait a minute, I thought it was already ours. 
I thought it was done. Here we see the same kind of tension. We're being told that for those who believe that we enter that rest. And then it says in verse 11, strive. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Again, you could read that as unbelief. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works. This isn't a ceasing of activity. For God's rest was not a ceasing of activity. For us, there is not a ceasing from activity, but a new wellspring of life which comes in the new birth, which is the Holy Spirit. And what does He do? He gives life and faith. He fills and empowers us and changes our desires. He unites us spiritually to our triune God by faith in Christ, whom we've received through the preaching of the gospel. And we enter into this place where loving and obeying God ceases to be toil, whereby we are trying to earn something and begins to be a work of joy. Because everything we needed, He has already provided. It's interesting that there, after calling us to strive to enter into that rest, so that no one may fall into the same sort of disobedience or unbelief, that it's there that we find Hebrews 4.12. that the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Why is that so interesting? It's so interesting because there's not one of us here probably that would deny that we're tired. That would deny that we're weary in some areas of our life. But most of us would do everything that we can to try and persuade ourselves and others that surely the reason that we are weary is not that we disbelieve God. That's the deceitfulness of sin. 
That's why the preacher here is saying that we have to exhort one another while it is called today so that we don't fall into that place of deceit because we can even fool ourselves into believing that it's surely not because of disbelief that I'm tired and weary. It's surely not that I'm not believing God. Surely it's simply that I just need a nap or a vacation or a beer or a coffee or everything. And we don't even realize how quickly, how effectively we take even the good gifts of God and convert and pervert them into idols. And so I want to give you three three ways that God has richly provided for you to care for you and I simply want to invite you to trust Him and believe in Him in those ways. The first is from Psalm 23. And if you are not tired and weary and you have no need of God or His Word today because you just got it on your own, then this is your invitation to just leave. But if you're like me, and there's still a vestige of unbelief in your heart, and you know today that the reason that you are weary and tired is because you have failed to believe God, then hear what the Word of God says this morning. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup 
overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The first way that I want to exhort you today is to remember that the Lord is your shepherd. That He is tending to the care of your soul. He restores my soul. Rest for my soul is what He gives. He provides all that's needed. He makes me, He causes me to lie down in green pastures. What is that? That's a a cease from toil. It's a cease from walking, from journeying, from toiling. And it's it's a causing to lie down in, in green pastures, which means what? There's been no drought The rains have come, the sun has come, the grass has grown, it's green, it's rich with nutrients, it's it's provided for me and I'm there. He leads me beside still waters. Why? Because little sheep have a hard time drinking out of white water rapids. How quickly, how easily they can be carried away just by trying to get a simple drink, and yet here this good shepherd leads you beside still waters. He leads you in right paths. It's really what that means, right paths, true paths. Paths that are not crooked and confusing, but he leads you in righteousness. And then there's something interesting here. It says that even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff comfort me. I don't know if you know this, but the rod and staff were not for soothing They're for rescue and discipline. You ever wonder why that shepherd staff always had this crook on the end of it? Do you know what that was for? It's for grabbing the sheep. In some instances, yanking it away from where it shouldn't be. In other instances, if a sheep had fallen into a ravine and can't get out, that crook would be let down into that ravine and the shepherd could lift and rescue that sheep out of that place. That's that's the staff. You know what the rod was for? Beating. The rod is for beating. It's for discipline. Comfort me? 
comfort me? Hebrews chapter 12. Verse 7 says, or verse, verse 6. Oh, let's go verse 5. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as, what does it say? Sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. Verse 6, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Listen to what he says. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are what? Illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good that we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Your rod and they staff, they comfort me. Why do they comfort me? They comfort me because when you are the one who lifts me up out of the muck and the mire with that shepherd's crook, when you discipline me and keep me from veering off of the true and right path that you have placed me on, it reminds me that I belong to you. Because for a moment I was thinking I belonged to somebody else. But your rod and your staff, they comfort me because they remind me whose I am. that I belong to a good shepherd. So God, let us return. I want to exhort you today to remember that the Lord is your good shepherd who cares for your soul. Yield to His care. Submit to His discipline and thank Him for it. For it is in that discipline that you are reminded that you belong to Him. John 15. Jesus speaking and he says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. 
As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments... You will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Jesus comes and He tells us that the Father is the vine dresser. Who's the vine dresser? The vine dresser is the one who comes into the vineyard, who tends to the vine who makes sure that every branch that is coming off the vine is bearing fruit, and those that aren't bearing fruit, He cuts away. And those that bear fruit, even those He prunes, that they may bear more fruit. And all along the way, he He is tending to the vine, caring for it. Again, that tending and caring doesn't come without pain at times. For who could say that anything that is cut away is pleasant? And yet we are reminded, even as Peter wrote to the church when he said that our works are being tested as gold is tested by fire, so that everything that does not belong to God may be burned away, so that only what remains is what is from Him. Here we see the vine dresser doing the same work. Cutting and pruning and cleaning and assuring that every branch is fully grafted in to the vine. What is so wonderful about that vine? It has no bulbous root of unbelief. For the vine is Christ. And by the Spirit we have been grafted into Him. The metaphor just keeps getting better because as sheep we can wander and stray. Though we have a good shepherd who will never, ever lose one of his sheep, we are still prone to think that maybe it's possible. But the metaphor 
changes, it moves. And as a vine dresser, we see a vine dresser who is meticulously caring for every vine. He is the one choosing which vine stays and which one goes away, which branch remains and which one is burned up. And that branch can't go anywhere by itself. What care, what tending, and how passive is that vine branch that receives the care of the vine dresser? The second way I want to exhort you today is to remember that God is the vine dresser. And that you are a branch that he has grafted into the true vine, which is Christ. And that he has done and is doing the work that is necessary to keep you, to sustain you, so that you remain. But there's one more. We've hit it briefly already in Hebrews chapter 12. But if you go to 1 John chapter 3, in just the first just the first verse. What does it say? It says, Behold, what manner of love Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called the children of God. The world wants us to say that everyone is a child of God. But that's not the narrative of Scripture. Scripture tells us that everyone has been created by God and being created by Him, they were created in His image and that there is a kind of love that God has for every image bearer. But there is a different and unique and special kind of love that Scripture describes that is reserved for those who are truly the children of God. Behold, what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called the children of God. And if children then heirs, co-heirs with Christ. And I'm sorry, but a sheep on any given day can just become a, lack, a rack of lamb. And that vine branch 
can be kindling. But children are forever. For even the most evil father will always be a father. And his children will always be his children. Children are forever. But we do not have an evil father. And if it is true that an evil father is a father to the end, how much more true is it that our good father will never abandon his children? He's not just a shepherd, he's the good shepherd. He's not just a vine dresser. He is the true vine dresser. And he's not just a father whose emotions and moods are affected by the actions of his children, swaying him between mercy and wrath. But rather, he is a good father who has perfections and not affections, who loves not because we caught his eye but because He set His affections upon us before the beginning of time. And said, They are the ones whom I have chosen. They are the ones whom I will redeem. And though their hearts may be prone to wander and leave and go astray, in my son I swear an oath, a covenant sealed by blood, that they shall enter my rest. So the preacher ends Hebrews 4 and says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin, let us then with confidence 
draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And what help do we need more than rest for our weary souls? And where does that rest come from? But by believing and trusting our sovereign God, His love and care for us as our good shepherd, vine dresser, and father. Would you stand with me as we pray this morning? Father, I pray right now in Jesus' name and by the power of your Holy Spirit that your word now would do its work as it was promised to do in Hebrews 4.12. That you would use your word, O God, to pierce our souls, to divide soul from spirit, piercing even unto bone and marrow. God, that you would unveil our eyes and show us where we have each of us failed to believe and trust you that we have resisted your care and stiffened our necks to your discipline. May we now be softened by your Spirit and boldly come before the throne of grace and find that you are faithful to your word. And will you now give help, give rest to this body in its time of need? Pray this in Jesus' name.